Welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York that believes wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy this week's sermon. As we're wrapping up our generosity piece for the year, we're also wrapping up our sermon series on Groundswell. Um, and it's been, a, um, it's been a great few months, hopefully for you as well, uh, but for the leadership and personally for me, of God just kind of speaking into um, my personal life, giving me deeper convictions about things and kind of revealing more and more of who he is and how gracious he is. Um, and as we're leading up the series, we're in the final chapter of John, John 21. Um, but before we get there, I do want to ask a question as we start. And I want to ask, the moon, the moon might come down a little bit, but what is your most recent experience with disappointment? Um, and living in the city, I, you, most of you probably experienced like 10 levels of disappointment just getting into this room, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, I don't, it's the weekend, subway's not working, it's a lot colder than you thought, you know, you stepped into a puddle, I don't know, there's multiple levels of disappointment. Um, Maybe one of it is you, you thought you heard this great preacher named Russell, and then you come in, and then now you have, you have me. So, um, surprise. <laughs> um, so there's multiple levels of disappointment. Um, and, you know, coming with expectations as well. Um, and just a personal story for me, most of my disappointments, most of the stories of my personal disappointment begins with long lines and a lot of hype. Um, and recently, my wife and I were in Paris, and we went in August, peak tourist season. Um, we saw more Asians than French people, um, so <laughs> do not go in August. <laughs> Everyone in Paris that lives locally, leave the city for all the tourists to come in. Um, but we went to the Louvre, you know, and of course, if you go there, you have to see the Mona Lisa, right? Um, and so thinks every other tourist in the city at the time. And apparently, the, the Mona Lisa is like on like the fourth, fifth floor, but the line starts in the basement. Yeah. Um, and it was one of those things like, I'm not really an art major, or I, I don't have this great desire for art. Um, but I was like, I guess we got to see it. <laughs> um, and the story begins actually because we didn't even want to go see the Mona Lisa. We just wanted to enter into that wing. But to enter into that wing, you have to be on this line. And so we're waiting on the line, waiting on the line. You're literally going, the escalators are part of the line <laughs> as you go up. And about an hour and a half in, we're still online, on the line. And finally, it's, you get into this room, it is a crowded space, um, and you literally have about 15 seconds to take a look at the Mona Lisa, take a selfie, picture, whatever you want to do, and then the security guards kick you out to the next room. And so we got there, and it was honestly, I mean, you might stole me for this, but one of the most underwhelming experiences of my life, <laughs> all right? First of all, that painting is probably the size of this music stand. <laughs> I was imagining this enormous masterpiece. Um, and you can't even see the details because you're about like 10 feet from the actual painting in a glass seal. It's, and, you know, we just took a quick selfie and then we got chased out. And I was like, man, this is like the epitome of disappointment, right? You have all this hype, all this culture, all this history. It's, like, it's a legendary painting. And you get there and I'm like, this is it. <laughs> Um, please, any angry emails forward them to Alice, not me. I am not an army major. Um, but with the Mona Lisa, man, it was such a disappointing experience for me. Maybe it's because I didn't have time to appreciate it more. But I realized 
in our journey of life from day to day, it's, it's honestly moving on from one disappointment to the next. And we usually sit with disappointment because something or someone has failed to live up to the expectations. Maybe for some of us, our most recent experience of disappointment is we were waiting on that job offer to come in. And then we get the call saying, hey, we decided to go with the other candidate. Maybe for some of us, the disappointment is we were expecting to see family this holiday season and just plans didn't work out. Maybe some of our disappointment comes as a parent, and I'm not a parent, but I can only imagine the, 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 the expectations and the hopes that are placed on you to be a good father, to be a good mother, to raise a human being, and we don't get to live up to it. Or maybe it's as a son or daughter. And, you know, for me, I, I realize time to time, like, man, I wish I could do something more as a son. So I don't think anyone, anyone here is, has been excused or free from disappointment. We've all experienced it. But what I do want to ask is what happens when we are the cause of disappointment in somebody else? I don't know about you, but that is more heart-wrenching to me. Because disappointment hurts. And the idea of not fulfilling or living up to expectations can be extremely condemning to our heart. Maybe our, maybe our perception of good and evil is different. And everyone here, our perception of good and evil is so subjective. It's different. But at the end of the day, when disappointment settles in, there's something that is shaken in our hearts. And a question, I don't know, for 2019, I don't know if it was a, it was a, it was a good year. It's been a great year. Um, but for some reason, the question I've been wrestling with is, how do we deal with guilt? How do we deal with regret? How do we deal with disappointment? See, disappointment is simply a symptom of failure. And failure is so painful because I believe it is a shot at our identity. When we are experiencing failure, it hurts because our identity is being disturbed. And our identity is essentially a creation of expectations, is it not? Our identity is shaped and formed whether as a, growing up as a kid, the expectations of our parents, the expectations of our city, of society, of culture, and especially living in a day where with everything in the air, being, we're, we're pretty much living exposed lives, where secrecy is essentially dead, and there's always the fear of being caught or found. Our identity is shaken once we experience failure, because failure proves that our purpose maybe isn't what it's called for. See, for me, um, I've been, I've, pastoring has been my, my journey for the last 12, 13 years. Um, I was thrown into the fire as a 19-year-old college student um, in charge of a whole bunch of youth, a um, bunch of teenagers. And putting a teenager in charge of a bunch of teenagers it's not the greatest idea. <laughs> um, and so that identity has been so ingrained in me that that's all I knew for the last 12, 13 years. And I realized when I think back on my years of ministry, there are so many moments and mile markers of failure, or at least what I consider to be failure. 
It's so hard to live up to, all, to the expectation of everyone in the room. It's hard to live up to, it's weird. I, I didn't realize how much power these teenagers had over me. They controlled my mood for the entire week. Because <laughs> I was trying to live into these expectations of these teenagers, of you know, trying to be relevant. And man, as a youth pastor trying to be relevant, this day and age, you get old very fast, right? And I know I'm sounding ancient right now, and I'm not. <laughs> but like trying to keep up with the changes and what they're thinking and what's, you know, what, their, what their passions are, but by the next week, by the time you catch on to it, it's over. <laughs> and so like I had to live into these expectations of these teenagers, live into the expectations of the parents. And, I, and parents, I love parents. I love working with parents. But if your kids are ever part of a church, <laughs> man, do not put the pastor in responsible, uh, being responsible for their entire well-being, <laughs> right? Their spiritual, social, it's, it's just, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but I felt like it's my job to be responsible for each, each student, for all the parents' expectations. And so when I failed, I'll be in this deep, deep pit. And how do we overcome failure? Sometimes it's by just performing more, right? Doing more, right? I need to get better at this. And for me, you're, you're speaking to someone that I, I hate any type of failure. I'll, I'll avoid disappointment to the best of my ability. Um, like, for instance, I'll, I normally won't ask somebody, hey, do you want to hang out? I'll ask when they're free. Because I don't want to be the one asking, hey, do you want to hang out Saturday? And they go, no. I want to know when you're free. <laughs> All right? And then if you say no, then I know something else, something else is up. <laughs> but disappointment and failure, not living up to the expectations, not living up to the expectations of our job, not living to the expectations of society, to what our resume speaks, to being a parent, to being a friend. See, it's painful. Identity is the creation of expectations, and that's where we discover purpose, fulfillment, quote-unquote, destiny. And even if we convince ourselves, and you know, I tried this methodology, I know, I know this is almost like cultural now, where it's like, I don't care what society thinks of me, I'm going to just do me, right? I'm just going to look out for me, I'm going to care about my needs, right? I'm not going to bend towards the cultural demands, I'm not going to bend towards what, but at the end of the day, I think the most painful voice and the painful, most painful expectation is the one that we have inside, Right? Like we say that we're our harshest critic. And there's these, there's these innate expectations that live inside of us. And when we don't meet those standards, it is gut wrenching. It shakes us to the core. Failure is a reminder that sometimes we're just not good enough. Failure is sometimes a reminder, most of the times, a reminder that we're less than. And in Luke 22, verses 52 to 62, and we're going we're gonna to move into John, but in John 21, we're going to be talking about Peter. But before we get to the highlight moment, I want to talk about what hap what's happening in Luke 22. And at this point in the story, this is when Jesus is being taken, he's been arrested, he's being questioned, he's being interrogated, he's being tortured. And the city is essentially in ruin. It's, there's a riot going on. And in verse 54, 
Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. And so this is Jesus. But then Peter followed at a distance. And something you need to know about Peter, Peter is the passionate one. He's the one that jumps in before thinking. He is not the rational one. He is the zealous one. He is the one that just trusts his guts. And he's all in. He doesn't think things through. I don't get along with Peter's. I'm the one that I need a 10-step plan before I make a decision, <laughs> right? So Peter's following at a distance, right? And this is odd because he supposedly was the most devoted one to Jesus. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour, hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, and man, can you imagine? At the moment of betrayal, the person you're betraying looks into your heart. The, Lord's, the Lord looked, into, looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Peter. The one who said, I'll follow you to death. Here he is, scared and in fear and denying Jesus. And see, this isn't simply a disassociation. This isn't simply saying, I don't know him as a friend, as a leader, as a teacher. This is him denying the entirety of his identity. See, when Jesus called Peter as a fisherman... Peter left everything behind. He left his family, left his entire life behind. He left his profession. Can you, what can compel us today? Who can compel us today for us to leave everything behind and to follow them? See, that's reckless. But Peter did that for Jesus. So there's something about you. He left everything. And then now in the moment, this could be the heroic moment for Peter. He denies Jesus. And he's broken. And he's weeping. Not because he lost a friend. Not simply because he made a mistake, but he knows that his entire identity has been stripped with this denial. Three times. And you know, honestly, when I originally read this passage growing up in church, I was like, what a punk. What a sellout. I don't want friends like Peter, <laughs> right? I want friends that will stay loyal to me, <laughs> even through my dumbest mistakes, <laughs> right? I, want, I, want a Peter, I don't want a Peter in my life. And it took a very profound movie by the title Saving Private Ryan for me to understand this scene. Because <laughs> in Saving Private Ryan, I won't ruin the movie, and one of my pet peeves is, as a, as a preacher, ruining movies for me. Um, watch it on your own, although it's been out for a while. There's a scene where, you know, Saving Private Ryan, it's, a, it's like a World War II typical movie, like war movie. And there's a scene where they're battling in a building. 
And one of the, the German soldiers is about to stab the American soldier. And in that moment, there's, a, there's, another, there's another companion for the American soldier, another soldier that comes in witnessing this scene, but he's frozen in fear and watches his friend die. Easily, he could have rescued him, but he froze, he froze in the moment. He was fearful. And I never experienced such anger in a movie before, right? And I realized I, I kind of get it. When there's a moment of fear, it paralyzes us. And see, Peter is not just walking around the courtyard. The city, is, is, it's, there's riots going on. There are people that are cheering to kill this man. This is, this is a huge scene, an event that's unfolding. In that moment of fear, Peter just denies Jesus. He's scared of what will happen to him. See, this is how we know his entire identity is shattered. Because in John 21, not the verse that we're going to get into, but in earlier portions of John 21, this is now the scene where Jesus has been crucified and his tomb has been found empty. He has resurrected. And now in his resurrection, as he's on earth, he's encountering different disciples. This is where he encounters Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas. He's like, is that really you? And kind of like a child, like, show me your hands. <laughs> right? So Jesus shows the, the, the wounds in his hands. And eventually, in this scene, Peter is once again fishing. He's in a boat. He's gone back to his old profession. His identity as a follower of Jesus has been robbed. And I could only imagine what has been going through Peter's heart and mind. I can't be a teacher. I can't be the one who talks about Jesus. I'm a hypocrite. Let me just go back to my old familiar way of life. He's trying to reestablish his identity. And in that moment, they see Jesus afar. And Peter, being the reckless, passionate one, just abandons the boat and starts moving towards Jesus. And they're having breakfast by the shore. And in verse um, 15, it says this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And now Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And this is a very interesting story of restoration. Because if I'm Jesus, I want answers. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, I looked into your soul the moment you're denying me. I told you you were going to do it, and you did it. <laughs> I want answers. I want to know why, because I'm, I'm a rational person. Right? What was your fear? What were you worried about? 
And if I'm Peter, I can't just say yes. I need to come up with excuses of why I failed. But even Peter in this moment, by his response, you know that I love you. You know he's been, he's been broken, he's been weeping. There's a bitterness in his heart. There's regret, there's guilt. And I love this question that Jesus asks, do you love me? Because in his attempt, in a successful attempt to restore Peter, he doesn't ask, what will you now do for me? If I'm Jesus, that's probably what I'll be asking. How will you make this up to me? Right? And, and not even in a, in, a, in a malicious, negative way, in a compelling way. I'll be like, well, if, you really, if you're really repentful, right? If you're really regretful, I want you to do this for me now. But the first question he asked is, do you love me? Do you love me? And then he says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And there's a, definitely a direct correlation of the three times Peter has denied Jesus to the three times Jesus asked this question. And the mission here is in, a lot of times when I read this passage or even spoke of this passage and shared about it, I'm like, if you love Jesus, go be a, go be a shepherd, right? Go pastor people, take care of people, right? That's your mission, right? You love Jesus, go do stuff for him now. You love Jesus, go take care of his people. But we need to understand that this is a very specific calling for Peter. Jesus is restoring the authority, the power, his identity back in place. He's saying, Peter, I know you messed up. I know you feel the depth and the despair of failure. And I know it's condemning your heart. But I want you to know that I'm going to restore you and then give you the purpose and the fulfillment that I originally planned for. Feed my sheep. See, being with Jesus doesn't begin with the heaviness of religiosity. It doesn't start with the commands. Our relationship begins with this question, do you love me? And I could only imagine Jesus asking me this question. Because in my faith, man, have I stumbled? Have I made mistakes? So many regrets. Over the years of being a youth pastor, um, almost 10 years, there's a lot of students you encounter. A lot of students now who are older, um, who are well into their careers. A lot of them I still keep in touch with, a lot of them I don't. But for some reason, there's this expectation on my heart that I've messed up. Because obviously not all of them are following Jesus. Not all of them are in this deep relationship and love and friendship with him. And there are also so many encounters that I had, conversations. Maybe if I didn't say that word. Maybe if my, my, if my tone or my mannerisms were different, this relationship would still be in store. There's a lot of heaviness in my failures. 
It's also a lot of heaviness in my failures in how I love my wife, on how I'm, I'm a son, how I love others. But I believe that when Jesus encounters our heart, the first thing isn't what have you done, what haven't you done, or what will you do, but the question is do you love me? And a lot of times I find myself sitting with this question. He says, do you love me? And then I'll probably answer, I do. But I failed at X, Y, Z. There's always that however cause. I love you, but man, today's been a tough day. I love you, but my heart is so broken right now. I can't even look at you. I love you, but I forgot to do this. I love you, but I can't do this. And this last, the third time when Jesus asked Simon, the son of John, do you love me? Is that Peter's like, you know I do. You know all things. And it's almost for me in the posture of, you know I failed, but you know I, I still love you. See, when we feel like our best isn't good enough at times, the reason Jesus can ask us, do you love me, as the initial question, and not what have you done for me, or what will you do for me, is because our success and our victories and our moments of celebration, they're not found in how well we perform for the world. It's not found in how well we perform at our jobs, how well we behave as a son or daughter, or how we operate as a parent. See, Jesus is the one that can shoulder all of our failures. See, the, the reason why our identity can be secure and safe is because just as he did with Peter, he approaches us time and time again, affirming our identity in him. Jesus isn't just restoring a job for Peter. Jesus isn't just restoring a title to him. Jesus is restoring a new identity in Peter. An identity that's not subject to the world, not subject to the people in our culture, but identity that is fully secure and anchored in our love for him and his love for us. Even when our love is weak and failing, his love does not change. And many times that's going to be the story. We just don't feel like we're good enough. We feel like we don't measure up to the level of faith that is expected. We don't measure up to the things that the world demands from us. And in those moments where our hearts feel condemned, where we feel less than, Jesus says, no, I'll, I'll restore you. I'll give you more than you can ever expect. I'll give you something that you can anchor yourself in. And, you know, a lot of times... Um, Christians will go, will go about saying the cross is enough. That's it, right? Don't need to preach anything else. Don't need to teach anything else. The cross, the cross, the cross. Very true. The cross is the foundation. But my question is, if the cross was it, if that was it, if Jesus dying on the cross was his crucifixion, if that was it, why did he return to Peter? Why couldn't Jesus have just said, this should have been enough for you, Peter? My death, the pain that I endured, should have been enough. But Jesus has his mission to come back, to continually affirm, because we sang it before, our, pro, our heart is prone to wander. 
and my heart is weak. My heart can be filled with disappointment, and it can crush my identity. It can crush my, my passions. It can crush my heart so easily. But it's in those moments, as Shane kind of spoke, the subtle moments of Jesus. A lot of times we want to look for that big wow moment, the, 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 the highlight, the epic, you know, portion of our story. But sometimes in the gentle whispers, Jesus is asking, do you love me? And here's the crazy thing. Even if we were to answer no, he'll respond, I still love you. My love for you will not change. And I'm going to invite, if the worship team can come back up. And the good news in all of this is this. Jesus didn't come just to celebrate our victories. Jesus came because even at our best, we come short. I don't know if you ever felt that way where you felt like you, you put in 110%, right? And as a kid, this is the biggest time, like the, the number one argument I had with my mom as a kid was this, you didn't try hard enough. I studied all day, all night, <laughs> right? You didn't apply yourself. <laughs> and those moments are, man, it's, it's crushing. Because like when you put in all your effort and then someone tells you it's still not good enough, you just want to give up. Right? That's, that's, that's at least my reaction in moments like that. When I feel like I put in all of my work and I have a proud project to show, right? A proud product of my life, right? Maybe I spent all this time working to be a good husband, right? All these counseling sessions, like surrounding myself with great fathers and husbands. And in those moments where I come short, like why, why do I even try? And see, that's the story of Jesus in our life. We try so hard to be accepted, to establish an identity, to establish this love in this world, to be loved, and for people to affirm who we are. See, because when we receive compliments and affirmation, it feels great. It affirms our identity, right? When we receive little cards, great job and appreciation, right? We feel so affirmed. But what about the moments when we fail? What do we do then? What about the moments when we are just an absolute disappointment? And I don't think any of us in this room want to admit that we're a disappointment. We like to think and try to believe and convince ourselves that we're proud, that we're strong, that we're good. But there's so many moments in my life where I fall short. And I could sit with that regret. I could try to indulge myself excessively with whatever, food, just numb myself with TV and social media, find things to do to de-stress. I can just work harder to make a better effort, to be a better me. I could be louder, I could be, I could be softer. But at the end of the day, I really don't know how to deal with guilt and regret. I don't know what to do with my mistakes. And the cross, the crux of our faith, symbolizes that when we fell short and we were even at our best, we didn't make it. Jesus covered that. It says, my victory, my accomplishment is greater than any of our failures here. 
that his work on the cross, dying for our mistakes, dying for our shortcomings, that's why he came. And when we approach him with our failures, he's like, my grace. That's why it's called grace. His mercy. And I don't know if you ever had someone in your corner that just absolutely believes in you. Um, I find it very rare. You'll have friends that'll kind of give you compliments, kind of encourage you, egg you on. But when you find someone that, when you make the biggest mistake of your life and they're still championing you, wow. You feel like you could just get off the ground and fly. <laughs> Even when you know you've made the biggest mistake and you just, you're just broken and someone's pushing you forward, cheering you on. Those people are very special. What's even more unique is Jesus. That when we pray, he'll answer and remind us. I love you. Your identity is secure. You don't have to perform for me. You don't have to do all this. Just sit with the question, do you love me? And see, it's when we answer yes, yes, that everything we do becomes an overflow of that response to him. If you don't know the eventual story of Peter, he dies a martyr. He actually gets crucified upside down. They say most likely by Nero during the mass, you know, murder of Christians, the genocide of Christians. And I don't think it's because Jesus gave him his full lecture on now how to live your life. I don't think Jesus motivated Peter to regret. You denied me three times already. <laughs> you better not do it again. I don't think it was simply the appearance of Jesus as the resurrected Savior. I think it's this, this restoration of Peter, this peace. Do you love me? And Peter realized, yes, yes, I love you. I, may, I might make mistakes, but I love you. And Peter went out to be one of the greatest apostles that we'll probably ever experience in this lifetime. To a point where even on his death, he refused to deny who Jesus was. And I don't think it was simply the reality of Jesus as a person, as a historical figure, but I think it was his denial to refuse the love of Jesus, his grace, and his resurrection. So if we can just take a moment to pray together. We sat with that question, what is our most recent experience of disappointment? What, 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 has, what, is that, what, what, what was that? How did that feel? And today as we pray, I just ask, invite Jesus into that space as a friend, as someone who restores, as someone who loves you. Invite Jesus into that place of disappointment, of failure. And you don't have to even ask him to redeem it, to restore it. Just ask him to sit with you in that. And this whole idea of groundswell. What will Jesus do if we invite him into those spaces? I just want you to wait and see. Behold what Jesus will speak to you about, what he will show you as you invite him and allow him into those spaces.
So in our prayer right now, can we just sit with that for just a couple, just a minute. As you just continue to pray, if you feel comfortable, please pray. But if you're just having trouble finding some words, um, you can sing along with the worship team. Hey, Hope Brooklyn. Darren here, your fellow Hope Brooklynite. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you're part of the community, you're aware that we've been exploring the topic of generosity and stewardship. Each week, we offer a thought to reflect on as we prepare to enter 2020, relying completely on your generosity. So have a listen to what we discussed this last Sunday, and we'll see you around the table soon. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this morning's fireside chat. Uh, we're very blessed to have uh, Yashane Cho with us this morning. Please, would you join me in welcoming Yashane? So Yashane, um, tell us where you're from. Tell us a little about yourself. Tell us how you found Hope Brooklyn. Sure. I am a native New Yorker, born in the Bronx, grew up in Queens, uh, lived in Manhattan, and then finally, after um, getting married, we moved to Brooklyn. So we've been Brooklynites for about 16 years now. Yeah. And, and where did you used to go to church, and, and what made you want to, you know, find Hope? Sure. Uh, so we, after we got married, we did some church hopping, um, trying to find a community for um, a newly married couple. And then we actually ended up going back to where my husband grew up, in, which is a church in Chinatown. It's called Chinese Evangel Mission, an old uh, church um, that we found community in for about 12 years then. And then uh, my niece, Caprina, I think maybe some of you know, was coming here to uh, Brooklyn, Hope Brooklyn, and I, because we've been part of Brooklyn living, physically living in Brooklyn, but we didn't really have a community in Brooklyn, so I was really curious about um, just finding a church um, in the area. And so when she started coming, I was like, oh, let me check it out. I checked out the website, was really um, intrigued by the vision of the church, which for me, um, which resonated with me, which is about looking out for people that nobody else wants to really pay attention to, or like just just looking out for people in general, like the outsider. You've mentioned this concept of churches that you've been part of and that it, it feels, churches feel like family or, and churches are and become family. Can you tell us more about that? So church has been part of my life since birth. Uh, my dad's a pastor. So just really grew up in uh, an environment where church was literally family, like my second home. Um, and so church... Being in a church community where it's considered family was literally, I would say, more important to me. It was a more important decision than, like, getting married, for, for me, at least, um, because family was just such a big part of my life. Um, yeah. And I guess growing up in that type of community, how mm -hmm. did you first start giving, or how was giving taught to you? Uh, so because uh, I grew up in, in a home where... Um, 
you know, worship and Sunday and just family, church family was so important. Um, my, since as early as I could remember, um, the idea or the practice of tithing was very much tied to the idea of uh, how we worship. Um, I just remember my parents um, at a very young age, you know, when you're kids, they give you quarters to, to put in the offering bag, and so that's fine. Later, I graduated to dollar bills. Um, that I, my parents always made it a point that um, even the dollar that we gave had to be a, a newer dollar. No, not a wrinkled dollar, but something that was just uh, new, or not new, but clean and, and neatly folded. So when I put it into the offering bag, it, there was just this practice of just like kind of like giving your best, giving your best. Um, so that was basically how I learned about the idea of tithing. The, the, the clean dollar, the unblemished dollar like the unblemished <laughs> lamb. Yeah. We appreciate the Levitical reference. Um, and then when, when money became your, you know, I, I was given money as a child also, right? And mm -hmm. it's like, of course you give it because, well, you, you didn't do much for it, right? Sure, it was given sure. to you. And then you start earning your own money. Um, what was that like when you started tithing on your own, so to speak? So... I mean, like I said, so uh, since young, you know, the idea or the practice seemed pretty much like a ritual, right? You give offering, and there are days where you just give and you give um, without really thinking about it. And obviously, as you earn money and you have income, it starts to become a little bit of a challenge, right? Because now you're starting to give your own money. Now my parents aren't giving me that dollar anymore. Um, and to be honest, like, it just like was just something I just did. You know, I think there are certain practices that we just do. And there are days when it, it, does, it does seem like that. But then there's, there are days, and it's subtle, but there are days when you're reminded, like, hey, this is not mine. You know, like, God really, he, without him, I, I really don't have this ability to earn this money to give back to him. Um, and that's a good day. <laughs> on a, on a not-so-good day, yeah, it's just kind of writing a check. Um, so that's kind of how it started, and it's been pretty subtle since then. You bring up a good point, which is you said it's just writing a check. I know that, yeah. you know, we have been saying, you know, we prefer people to give recurringly, but um, tell us why you actually write a physical check. Yeah, I, I'm old school. <laughs> uh, my husband and I, we, um, we talk about it. We, we are, it's basically a non-negotiable for us. Um, we, we write a check because literally on those good days, it humbles me. It reminds me every week that this is part of my worship, you know. Um, and I say it very literally. Like, I honestly feel like for me, for my husband and I, um, when we give that physical check, it literally is a reminder that it's all from God. And um, it's my worship to him. Um, so that, that's kind of why we, we kind of practice that, to remind us. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And I also, I know that um, you are a contractor, you're a freelancer, yeah. right? How do you work that in, in terms of your budgeting and planning? So as a contractor, um, I work based on projects, you know, very, every six months or so. Um, my husband, yeah, we, we've gone through, like, job displacements, um, uncertainties. This year has been, you know, a little bit of a challenge. Um, it's, it's just something that we sort of decide on in the beginning and, we don't talk that much about it. We just say, okay, this is the amount that we give, and we don't adjust too much from it unless something drastic happens. So we're basically, pr we're consistent. Like, this, it's the same amount, like, every week. And um, like I said, unless something really, like, drastic, like, where it reduces or increases, then that amount will change for us. That, that's just our practice. Um, 
so we're all moving into the season of giving and you know some of us are trying for the first time others it's been on recurring payment direct debit autopilot in the <laughs> background maybe we should step it up a bit um, what is your what is your suggestion for us I know you've mentioned a few things to me people when we're meeting you know and discussing this you know what's your encouragement for us today so I think of it as if I were um, talking to my kid or someone that's you know that needs a little encouragement I, I my perspective is just making an intentional decision. That's it. Like it's, it's just something that I think that um, if we do that, then we take that step, then we'll see God work. It's, and as, as if with anything that we do, right? Finances, work, life, relationships, like if we don't take that step, then we really can't see God work. And it could be in a blessing, it could be something else, it could be something different. Um, it's going to be something that makes us uncomfortable. And Rob and I made a conscious decision, even coming to this church, that we're going to be okay being uncomfortable with the situation. Um, and for some of us, maybe uncomfortable will be finances. For some of us, it'll be other things. And we struggle with that on a daily basis of what we struggle with, what's different. So at the end, it's just being intentional. Ishane, I asked you uh, when we were preparing, I said, you know, why do it if it's uncomfortable, right? And you mentioned to me, um, it's because, you know, I had a family in Queens and I had a family in uh, New York and Manhattan, and then I, and I've been living here, and now I want a Brooklyn family, and being comfortable means integrating into that. Um, yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that and your, and your kids? Um, so coming here, I have, we have three children, um, ranging from second grade to middle school. And it wasn't an easy decision to come here because to, um, to have one church meet the needs of five people is not the easiest thing in the world. You know? um, and for me, I, I did pray about it because I really wanted, um, obviously, my husband, Rob, and I to be aligned on whether this would be the right place for us to, be, to make a commitment. Um, and so it's been a year now. Um, can I say we're totally comfortable, totally acclimated? No, <laughs> but that's okay. And I think what it does is it helps us to have empathy for others that are not comfortable, um, because I know what it feels like to be uncomfortable. Um, so it's, uh, it continues to be something that we are mindful of, but then I have the confidence as we worship, like I'm prone to wander prone to leave God, but he is steadily there, subtly. For me, it's subtle. It's not a wow moment. It's subtle. And he constantly reminds me that he's there. Um, and so he encourages me to be there for someone else that's not comfortable. So, that, I mean, that's the lesson that he's been teaching me over these years. Uh, and I can only hope to, to be able to carry that out with, with him. Yeah. Shane, Rob, Thank you so much for your sacrifice. Thank you for bringing your family here to be part of ours. And um, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Sure, sure. Right. To find out more about the mission of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday gatherings, brunch, how to financially contribute, and a whole lot more, Check us out online at www.hopebrooklyn.org. Thanks to Liz Vice at lizvice.com for the music and to you for tuning in. See you next week. <laughs>